Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Michael Dennis Higgins. He is a professor emeritus of earth science at the University of Quebec. And I apologize. I'm not sure how to pronounce the exact uh, part of the university that you're with. Shikutami. Okay. Okay. I'll let you, I'll let you handle that. And he is the author of multiple scientific books. And he's also the author of a very interesting book I came across um, that was published this year called The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, Science, Engineering, and Technology. And it is the first book to explore the seven wonders of the ancient world through the lens of science and engineering. So um, I have to say, uh, Professor Higgins, I've been really fascinated by this list of seven wonders since I was a kid. And I was thinking about doing a series of episodes about them. And when I came across this book, uh, I, I got really excited to reach out to you. So thanks for coming on today. We're really happy to have you on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Um, and I, I think usually what I, I like to start out with is just learning a little bit more about the guests and what your background is. So can you share a little bit about uh, your background in the sciences and, and then how you got involved in studying this specific topic of the seven wonders? Well, I, I was born in Britain, and uh, my father was a curator at the British Museum. And so, as a little boy, of course, I had a collection, like he had a collection. Oh, wow. And uh, um, so, uh, anyway, he, he when I started studying geology, he kept saying, oh, the archaeologists always get the geology wrong. Um, anyway, so, anyway, time passed by, and he got older, and I got older, and uh, uh, and then I realized that I started checking out, and yes, the, the archaeologists were getting the geology of Greece wrong, because that was his speciality. So we wrote a book together, and that was my, my, how I started off in this business. Uh, he did the archaeology, and I did the geology. Wow. Uh, it was awesome. a very nice, very privilege, a great privilege to be able to do a project like that with your father. So yeah. uh, anyway, he, when he died, he, I realized he'd written on the one of his he'd he'd written on the um one of the seven wonders of the ancient world in a in a book published in 1988 uh he'd written on the colossus and so i i thought a few years ago when i just after i'd retired that uh, this would make a good book to uh, to look at the, essentially the the geology and uh, the science of the seven wonders wow that's awesome so that would be the colossus of roads, is that right? That exactly. Yes. So that's one of the seven wonders. So everybody knows the seven wonders, as they say. But the the original lists actually go back to the third or second century BCE. So they go back over two thousand two hundred years. But the lists then are slightly different from the modern ones. So I'll give you what the list they gave was, the, the pyramids of Giza, of course, the biggest, the oldest. Um, the statue of Zeus at Olympia, because the Olympic Games, of course, were a worship, way of worshipping Zeus. There's the mausoleum, which was the tomb of King Marsolus, and that's in the present-day Turkey. The Temple of Artemis, which is at Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. The Colossus of Rhodes, which was a gigantic statue, bronze statue, um, on the island, Greek island of Rhodes. And Babylon was rewarded with two wonders. It had the famous hanging gardens. And hanging, in this case, means is a mistranslation. It means terraced gardens. Mm. Uh, they weren't hanging anywhere. 
uh, and the walls of Babylon. That was the uh, the, the final wonder. Uh, anyway, later on, in, in much more recent times, the walls of Babylon got demoted and the Pharos got added in. But the Pharos got uh, added in probably in the uh, Renaissance times. So that's the 16th, 17th century, 17th century CE. Curiously enough, just after the Pharos had collapsed and there was nothing left of it. Um, but it was added in much, much later than all the other ones. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that. And the Pharos you're referring to is also called the Lighthouse of Alexandria. Is that? Yes, exactly. I, I prefer to use the term Pharos, from the, which is the original name, because originally it wasn't actually a lighthouse. It had kind of a light, but um, it, was, it was originally built in the third century BCE uh, by, by the Greek rulers of Egypt. Okay. Uh, but of course, they didn't sail at night at that time of year uh, in, in those days. So it, they didn't really need a lighthouse, except under very extreme conditions. Well, and so we talked about focusing in on this lighthouse of of the all of the wonders here. And so I, um, I guess my first question to you uh, around the lighthouse, and you've already touched on it a little bit, was why was it built at the time that it was, and and sort of um, who commissioned it, and and wanted to, and what were they trying to accomplish? Well, the story starts with Alexander, Alexander the Third of Macedon, uh, who some people, of course, called Alexander the Great, but uh, he was only the great if you didn't, he didn't happen to conquer you, of course. <laughs> anyway, so he um, he set off uh, from Macedonia to conquer the Persians, and he, anyway, he did a slight diversion because the Persians were were governing uh, what is modern Egypt at that time. So he did a diversion. Uh, and came down to Egypt uh, in uh, 320 in 331 BCE, and went to the future site of Alexandria. Founded the city of Alexandria, named after himself. It was first of thirteen cities that were going to be called Alexandria. Um, anyway, he he breezed through there and gave a few instructions to people, and then went on. And he went on uh, farther east as far as India. Uh, fighting the Persians, and he came back, and he died in Babylon in 323, at which point uh, there was a big fight for, amongst his generals and friends and hangers-on for dividing up the empire, because the empire was much too big to control. So Egypt went under the rule of Ptolemy I, and Ptolemy I was the one who essentially built uh, ancient Alexandria. He was a Greek. Um, but uh, he ruled he ruled Egypt, and he proposed a number of projects. And one of the projects was the lighthouse. And the reason why you needed a lighthouse was because he wanted to make Alexandria into the greatest port in uh, the whole of the Eastern Mediterranean. And that's partly, of course, because uh, Alexander had actually destroyed all the ports in what we would now call the Holy Land in the Middle East uh, during his. Uh, so they wanted to, to build a new one, and but the coast along there is very, very low. Uh, there's virtually no relief. There's sandbars all the way along. It's extremely treacherous. There's only one good harbour in about 
1,500 kilometers along that coast, and that's Alexandria. But you can't really see it from very far out. So they decided they would build a tower uh, so that people could find the harbor. So the person who is credited with building it is a guy called Sostratus. Um, so it's unusual that um, a project like that would not have been built by royalty, by the ruler. But I think you have to think of Sostratus as a, basically kind of like a, a Russian oligarch, you know, immensely wealthy, but very much dependent on the ruler. So uh, the ruler would say, in this case, Ptolemy, you know, would you, would you like to build a tower for me? In which case, the answer, of course, is yes, certainly. <laughs> How tall do you want it to be? So, um, so I think you have to think of it in that terms. I mean, he's sometimes proposed as the architect, but, you know, it's difficult to say. I don't think he was the foreman in charge of building it, but he was a very important person. Mm -hmm. And he was a merchant, so he stood to profit by it. Um, by building this, uh, this, this tower. So this was in about uh, 300 BCE that they started it, and they finished it maybe 20 or 30 years later. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so that was, early, that was earlier than I realized. Okay, so um, what about the tower was so impressive to people in, in the ancient world? Was it just the well, size? I think the answer is, of course, since it wasn't included in the original lists, the answer is they weren't impressed by it. Um, what impressed people was a much later version of it, because the, the Pharos existed for 1,600 years. And you can imagine any building over 1,600 years, it would have, bits would have fallen down, it would have been rebuilt, it would have been expanded, it, would, it was changed many, many times over that immensely long period of time and immensely different cultures because i mean it started off in essentially greek ruled egypt it existed through roman ruled egypt and finally um most of its life was probably in islamic egypt and the best description we have in fact is from islamic times which we can probably talk about a, li a little bit later um and in fact, the original building, uh, we don't have much of a description of. We just have a description that it's a tower uh, and that you can see it from a long way away and that there was a statue of Zeus on the top and there was a fire, i.e. a beacon of some kind. But I doubt if it was, I think it was more for ceremonial occasions, they would have lit a fire. So that's all we have is this description of this of this tower um but we have a very good description of the islamic uh pharos so this is from the 12th century ce and the description there gives the description of a base which was kind of square and about 70 meters tall so that's about 220 feet and that's probably the original Pharos is the is the first floor of this later one, and people are added on as they inevitably do onto the top. But they built this tower. Now it was big, but it wasn't exceptionally big. Um, I think everybody's seen pictures of uh, Egyptian temples, 
and mm. uh, has an idea of what they look like. Well, many of the Egyptian temples had a kind of monumental gateway leading into the temple compound, and it was two towers, uh, square, slightly tapering, uh, about 30 meters high, like 100 feet high, um, with a huge gate in between them, like a, a, a doorway that would have been 10 meters there, 30, 40 feet high. Um, so I think that the original pharos, the original tower, essentially, the beacon, um, was essentially based on the Egyptian temple. They kind of mentally took these two towers that were on either side of the gateway, put one on top of the other, and then put the monumental gateway in the side of the tower. Because we know that there was a monumental gateway that was 13 meters high and about four meters wide. So that's uh, trying to 40, 40 feet high. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously too big to have an actual real door in it. But, uh, but it was a doorway all the same. So I think that's what they did. So it was, yes, it was big. I mean, it was, you know, it was over 200 feet tall, but it wasn't exceptional construction for what they were doing at that time. They were certainly, uh, they were used to putting up big buildings. I mean, we only have to think of the, um, of the, of the, of the pyramids for a big building. Uh, yeah. So, you know, they, 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 they had no problem with that. Um, they built it on uh, a small island that was just slightly offshore, uh, and which was the island by the same name of Pharos. Pharos means seal island, because there used to be Mediterranean seals on it. Um, but of course, the building became known as the Pharos from the name of the island. So I think that's what the original structure looked like, this kind of tapering, blocky tower with a flat top with a, a, a statue of Zeus on it, big enough that you could see it from a long way away, but how big, we don't know, maybe, you know, five meters, 10 meters, something like that. And some kind of arrangement for lighting fires on the platform at the top. Probably, we think there was a, a ramp inside the um, a stair, kind of stair, well, a, a ramp rather than a staircase inside the tower, so they could you could walk up inside and out onto the top, and you could make a brush fire, you know, just with um, uh, because everybody thinks of Egypt as being completely desert, but of course it isn't. Along the Mediterranean coast, it's it's fairly humid; it, it rains in the winter, um, and you know there are there are there are big trees, but there are small bushes and things like that that could have easily been burnt. Uh, but I think, as I said, that they probably only did it for ceremonial occasions uh, because nobody nobody sailed at night. It was too dangerous. Mm. So as we think about Alexandria, Alexandria did end up becoming one of, if not the most uh, populous or most important city in the Mediterranean world for at least some period of time. Did the Did the lighthouse play any kind of practical role in that was it more of a symbolic kind of thing did it have any strategic importance or anything like that oh it was immensely important the the uh, ptolemies that's to say uh, the whole f ptolemy's family ruled alexandria uh, ruled egypt for about 300 years and of course the last uh, ptolemaic uh, uh, 
uh, emperor is Cleopatra the seventh, uh, who's who's uh, who is probably the best known of the lot. And it was uh, when she died by suicide that was the end of the Ptolemaic uh, regime, and Egypt then passed to the Romans. It was very important, but in Roman times, because Rome gave out free bread essentially to its citizens. It was the famous bread and circuses to keep people quiet. But they needed to get, Rome was a city of a million people, they needed to get that grain from somewhere. And the most fertile and productive part of the entire Mediterranean was Egypt, was essentially the Egyptian delta, not the, uh, the valley that goes down to the south, but the delta itself. And so that's why the Romans wanted Egypt. They wanted it for the food supplies. And they built huge boats to transport the, uh, um, the grain from Egypt to Rome. And that's why they needed to develop the port of Alexandria. Now, we know that the, uh, the Pharos, the lighthouse, actually became a lighthouse at this time because the Romans, there was so much congestion in the port that the Romans sometimes had to sail at night, which the Greeks never did. And it was just simply congestion, too many boats not enough space. So we know what the forest looked like at this point because um, we have a couple of images of it on coins. Mm. Now, we think of coins as being, um, uh, you know, using for money, but they were also essentially souvenirs. And I bet they're souvenirs now often are coins. And so often um, uh, cities would put on the thing that they're most proud of on their coins, on the back of the coins. And so we have images of the pharos, and at this stage, it's got two floors. So it's got a blocky base, and you can see the giant doorway in it. Then this, this kind of blocky base has, at the very top, it has statues of tritons. The triton is a kind of merman. Um, then there's a second story, which is a kind of continuation, maybe a a quarter the height, half the diameter of the bottom, and that has a statue on the top. And some people would claim that you can see a series of columns uh, supporting the statue, in which case that might have been where the fire was lit. So at this point, it really was uh, probably a lighthouse. There's stories that they use bronze mirrors to reflect the light out from the fire out to sea, um, presumably suspended over the flames. And again, they would have dragged up brush uh, through the ramps inside the building up to the top to light it. And again, we don't know whether it was burnt. It was burning every day, but probably in the shipping season, it, they, would have, they would have lit a fire when they needed to. But uh, yeah, for many hundred years, uh, Alexandria was a very important port. And uh, so it sounds like in the Greek era, it didn't have as much practical application as far as being a lighthouse goes. And then in the Roman area, in the Roman era, as Alexandria was a much larger port, it was used in that capacity um, to actually help with the, the guiding of ships and whatnot um, in the harbor. I think, no, I think in Greek times, as in Roman times, during the day, you just saw this great tower. And okay. so, uh, because the land's so flat around there, um, this was, uh, and it was, and it was maybe 
10, 12 meters above sea level at that point. So that gave it an extra height as well. So, okay. it, you know, it was a kind of beacon. And sure. at night, yes, it had the light. But the day, you could see this thing because uh, there was nothing else. I mean, you know, it was uh, uh, along that flat coast. Can you talk about the the scale a little bit? Um you know, and, and you, you talked about it being over 200 feet tall, I think, by this Roman era. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like compared to some of these other wonders and, and not even just the wonders on the list, but things you're familiar with of that time period in the world. I mean, I think as a child, you hear Lighthouse of Alexandria and you think this was like, you know, the... Um, uh, uh, this a skyscraper of the era. This was um, like the Empire State Building or something like that of the time. It, it is that true, or was it was it not out of scale for for that time based on things other things that were being built? It was it was very very big. I mean, the Roman one was definitely slightly taller than the uh, the original Greek one. Um, it was probably about twice the height of any temple, hmm. but it was, of course, much smaller. It was much, much lower than the pyramids. But the pyramids are way to the south. I mean, the pyramids are, what, 200, 250 kilometers further south. So you wouldn't have seen the pyramids from the coast at all. Okay. They're, they're a whole different thing there. But that was the only thing that was bigger, were the pyramids. From, a, from an engineering perspective, when you studied this, what stuck out to you? Did anything about how they built it surprise you or anything particularly challenging about the way they were uh, constructing this? Well, when they were building it, they chose, uh, they chose, they chose the right place uh, to build it because the island itself has a kind of cap of limestone. Um, which is several meters thick. It covers the whole top of it. It's a, a cemented beach sand. So normally we think of beaches as being, you know, lovely places with nice soft sand. But in the Mediterranean, um, beaches, especially beaches with a lot of shells on them, become cemented. And people are often surprised when they go to the Mediterranean. They think, why has somebody poured, poured concrete on all the beaches? But it's actually a natural uh, cementation process, and it looks exactly like concrete, but it makes a very good base for um, for building. It's also made a very good building material because it's very easy to cut this rock. You can cut it with uh, bronze saws because at that point they would have had they would have had bronze uh, bronze saws like a like a giant wood wood saw essentially. Uh, you could have cut the blocks very readily with that, and they would have done that elsewhere. We don't know where the quarries are. Uh, because they're undoubtedly below water, because sea level has actually gone up about seven meters since that time, uh, which was actually the demise of of the uh, um, uh, of the uh, Faros was due to sea level rise uh, and erosion, because underneath this limestone is very soft sand. So, provided you can keep that that um, those foundations intact, it was very, it was excellent for building. Large buildings. Uh, that part of the world has relatively few earthquakes. It does have um, though dangers from tsunamis because there are earthquakes, big earthquakes, out towards Greece and Turkey, and these could generate huge waves. We've got some lovely descriptions from Roman times of some of these tsunamis, and they sound exactly like 
modern descriptions of tsunamis, and everybody's seen pictures of tsunamis, especially that that incredible one in Japan uh, and in Thailand, uh, which gives you an idea of the problem. But for a number of reasons, the Faros was actually, they built it so it was actually proof against tsunamis, because they built a courtyard around the base of the Faros, which had a wall around it. Now, the reason they did this was probably because the stone is very easy to cut, it's very easy to erode, and it's particularly easily eroded by sea spray. So when the waves break, the sea soaks into the rock, and in the sun it dries, it crystallizes, and forces the rock apart. So it falls apart. So what they did is they built this courtyard and this and this wall so that the sea spray would only attack the wall and not the forest itself. But it turned out, of course, that this was pretty good proof against uh, tsunamis too, because the tsunami, the energy of the tsunami was broken by, by the wall. And, and the tsunamis, in fact, never really affected the, uh, um, the forest itself. So it was a pretty sophisticated plan building this they thought through a lot of these kinds of challenges it sounds like um can you talk a little bit about how it continued to evolve uh from roman times and then um into islamic times and and things like that did it continue to grow uh as time went on or do we know or what do you think well, you know, this, uh, you know, we we often think we know a lot about history, but we don't. There are the huge gaps where, you know, if things were recorded, then we don't know what's happening with them. And this was the case after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. The Eastern Roman Empire, of course, continued and became the Byzantine Empire. But but once the West fell, um, there was relatively little interest in trade to Italy because they didn't there wasn't a trade for grain anymore. There was other trade coming in and out. So I think the city kind of slightly languished. And then uh, once Islam became established, then uh, trade started to pick up again. But one thing that was particularly important was there was pilgrimages. Because as you know, uh, Muslims, one of the tenets of the faith is that if they can, they should should journey to Mecca mm. at least once in their lifetime. And one of the wealthiest parts of the Islamic empire was southern Spain and modern Morocco. Um, so that was the, the, the Maghreb, essentially. And so people who are wealthy Muslims from their scholars would undertake a, uh, a pilgrimage and they would go along the coast, either on boats or they would go by land. And they would go through Alexandria, and then they would go on to Arabia, to, to Mecca. And very often, these were intellectual men, mostly men, I should say. Uh, uh, and they would write down what they saw. So we actually have some very clear descriptions of the, of the lighthouse, of the Pharos at many different times from these Islamic travelers. Like they had plenty of time, and plenty of time often hanging around in Alexandria, arranging for the next part of their stage. So they, it was a tourist destination. So they would write about it. And we have a particularly good one by uh, a guy called, uh, uh, excuse me, 
Al-Balawi. Uh, we have a particularly good one by Al-Balawi, who's writing in the 12th century. And he is uh, he's a builder uh, from uh, Malaga, which is now in southern Spain. And he's built mosques. So he's got a big interest in, um, uh, in construction. So he goes and visits the, uh, um, the Faros, and he measures it. So he walks up, he gets a guide to take him out, uh, and he has a string with uh, weight on it. And he goes up the, uh, the Faros, and he measures each of the different uh, stories. And it gives us a description of their size. He's using um, basically human measures. So he's using, he's measuring things in paces and in hand spans and in fathoms. A fathom is the distance if you stretch out your arms from your fingers on one side to the weakest on the other side. So if you've measured something by, uh, so it's about six feet, about two meters. Uh, so if you've measured a piece of string which you've dropped over the side, um, this is a good way to get the height. So he gives us a really, really detailed description. Now, sometimes there's, there's, it gets a bit vague in places. At one point, he says, I can't read my writing, but, but I think it's this. <laughs> so it must have kept quite copious notes. Uh, and anyway, so he gives us a description. And at this point, it has three stories. So it's got the base, which we think is the original Pharos. Then it has a middle section which seems to be bigger than the Roman one. So we suspect that the Roman one collapsed and was rebuilt. And he mentions that it's built in brick. And uh, for a lot of uh, Islamic constructions, they used brick uh, and, uh, rather than stone. Um, so the, the, the first floor he describes as being square. The second floor, the second story, is, uh, um, is uh, octagonal. And then there's a third story, which is circular. And on top of it, there's a mosque with a dome. Now, it's not, people have ideas of mosques as being, you know, large buildings with minarets and all the rest of it. But this would probably be closer to what we would think of as a chapel. Mm. So it would have been up there. Yes, there was space. You could have had a few people for prayer, but it was not very big. Um, and he describes, or some of the other describers, that Visitors describe how the Christians would go up there to uh, light fires on the top of the first story, which is where, which was what was originally used for signaling. But the suspicion is that it wasn't really, it wasn't really a lighthouse at this stage. It was a, it was a beacon, and it was a symbol of the city, and of the power of the city. So we have we have these wonderful descriptions of it from Islamic times, and. We have another uh, another visitor in uh, the uh, in the 14th century who is the last person to see the uh, the Pharos. He was a traveler who went uh, incredible distances. Anyway, he traveled from uh, from essentially modern Morocco to Alexandria. He visited the Pharos and describes how. It was a bit damaged, but there was still somebody living in it, and you could walk up inside. He then uh, uh, got persuaded to visit uh, India and China, and he came back some 25 years later and described that the forest had fallen down. Now, at that point, uh, this is the mid-14th century. It's also well known, of course, for the, for the plague, the Black Death. 
So he was basically traveling back along the same route, the Silk Road, that had ha- that, that the plague had come along because the plague originated in, in Asia. And so by the time he got to, um, got to Alexandria, most of the population was dying from, mm. the, from the plague. And in fact, every town he went to essentially was, was in the midst of this great pandemic, of this, this disaster. And so the, the forest collapsed for natural reasons. The, the foundations got washed away during storms. But it was never rebuilt because of the Black Death and the plague which continued. Uh, and that nobody really had, there was no trade. There was no reason for it. There was no real resources. So it collapsed into the sea. And it's at that point, about 100 years later, people have this memory of it, and it's put on the list of seven wonders of the ancient world. But only after it's not there anymore, which is a little curious. It's a little curious, and it makes me wonder, do you think it belongs on the list? Oh, I think so, yes. Okay, I'm just, I'm just wondering, because you know sometimes... Uh, once something's gone, it's mythologized and it's, you know, and the impression of it changes. So I just was curious if, if you thought that, and it, it sounds like I was always under the impression that the lighthouse was destroyed by natural causes, storms or earthquakes or something like that. And it, but it sounds like that part of its story was the human neglect of of this plague, um, the black death. And that, over the centuries, it had there were major efforts to restore it and improve it and strengthen it and whatnot. But once, um, once the city was uh, taken over by the plague and so many people were dying and all of this, they're just it was neglected. That's exactly that. You know, yeah, a building doesn't survive sixteen hundred years without continuous maintenance, mm. and uh, a tower like that built of this um, uh, Shelley limestone. Um, which is very easy to cut, but it absorbs water. And so the sea spray that comes in would have eroded away the base of the walls. So you'd have had to have been continued to replacing those. And I also mentioned that it's a bit curious, but sea level has risen about seven meters since then. So um, when it was built, the sea was a long way away from the actual uh, forest itself. But because the land had sunk or sea level had gone up, the sea approached the uh, the actual um, forest itself, the foundations, and eroded away the foundations. So it probably eroded under this limestone cap. And there are descriptions of how they used to throw old columns and other junk into the sea, and they were presumably trying to fill up some of this erosion problem. But they stopped doing it, and it eroded away, and then it collapsed. And it must have collapsed at the end, quite spectacularly, because the the, the uh, blocks are distributed over the uh, sea floor to the uh, to the to the east of the uh, um, of the remains of the island, mm. and that was uh, and that's how it stayed for a long time. They 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 built a fort about a hundred years after it died, after it uh, collapsed. Um, 
and it's often said that it's built on the foundations of the um, of the pharos. But you know, a moment's reflection says that nobody would build on the foundations of the pharos because you know it's a big pile of rubble. So what you do is you build beside it. You know, they use the material from it, but then they weren't stupid enough just to try and dig the whole lot out before they before they started rebuilding it. <laughs> and so that that fort is still there. It's been heavily restored, but it's still there in Alexandria. And in the 1930s, they did a restoration job of it, and they dumped a whole load of huge blocks into the sea as a breakwater, right across the remains of the Pharos. Then in the 1990s, they did the same thing again. They, they, this time, they put huge concrete blocks, uh, because it was a military establishment uh, at that point, and the military uh, don't always perhaps respect the environment as, as much as they could do. So they poured these huge concrete blocks over the remains of the pharos. And at that point in Alexandria, people started to, to realize that they were losing uh, this great, you know, the remains of this great heritage. And um, they started excavating at that point. And it's been going on ever since. Uh, the excavation of the remains, but it's essentially a pile of blocks on the seafloor. There are there are also some statues. You may have seen pictures of a of a diver with a uh, with his mask right up against a sphinx. Uh, some of those are from the remains of the pharos itself, because there was a temple of Isis uh, built uh, beside the pharos itself. Isis is a kind of uh, precursor mother god, uh, goddess. Uh, so we have. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so we have archaeological remains of the of the lighthouse. It's just been difficult to access them. Well, the water's pretty murky there, and it's a and it's a commercial harbor. So yes, the the blocks that have been recovered are the ones that are more interesting. So so columns, they're the the door frame from this gigantic thirteen meter high door frame. Uh, that's been recovered. Uh, huge blocks of granite, uh, sphinxes, uh, other statues. Um, but it's going. It's it's always been going quite slowly. Archaeological excavations always go very very slowly. But the actual blocks from the limestone light, lighthouse itself, they're not going to bother to raise those. Um, and it's just a big jumble on on the sea floor there. I mean, they've they've been there for what over six hundred years. Well, six hundred years or so. So it's. Uh, uh, it's it's not the easiest place to excavate. <laughs> Do you expect that there could be anything in there that uh, that you're keeping an eye out for that could be surprising, or um, is it something that uh, you think we might know more about the lighthouse 50 years from now or 200 years from now, or is it really more about these written descriptions at this point? Um, I don't think we're going to discover anything really new. Um, the we might discuss. I mean, there will be undoubtedly other discoveries of uh, statues and sphinxes and um, things like that. Uh, but I don't think they have any plans for going down below what is visible on the seafloor itself, because obviously there must be a whole, whole pile of rubble there, mm. um, and there's a lot of stuff further down uh, inside that pile of rubble. But I don't think they. They have any intention of doing that? I mean, the, Egypt's got enough stuff uh, that needs excavating anyway. That uh, I don't think they're going to put the uh, the effort on, and it's it's very expensive to um, to do these underwater excavations. It's 
it's largely funded by um, by a private uh, foundation. Mm. Fact. So, am I right to say that the Lighthouse of Alexandria or Pharos of Alexandria is the latest wonder to be added to the so-called list of the seven wonders of the ancient world? It was added last. Is that right? Yes, it was added last. It was added probably in the 16th century CE. Right. So yeah. after it had collapsed. And it uh, just kind of popped up um, on a list, and or is there any reasoning given or anything like that? I don't know why it, it appeared at that point. I mean, the curious thing is that, you know, Alexandria, the, the, the original Ptolemaic Alexandria, the Greek one, had one of the one of the ideas that Alexander the Great had was to found a library and a essentially a university there, a study institute, and this was called the Museon, uh, and uh, it had residential quarters like a college where scholars could stay, and it had a place where they could study and a library. So it was a great center of learning. And in fact, one of the early descriptions we have of the Seven Wonders is from uh, Philo of uh, Byzantium, uh, who uh, actually spent his life almost entirely in Alexandria. And so he's writing in the library itself. And so presumably he, needed to, he could just look out the window and see the, um, and see the pharos itself. But he didn't put it in his list of, of wonders. Um, and I think it was because probably several reasons, one of which was that it was a bit mundane. You know, things that are a long way away and more exotic uh, uh, are always more interesting than the things on your own doorstep. Right. <laughs> I mean, think of, 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 of where you live. That You know, you have you ever been to see the Parthenon in Nashville? Oh, actually... Uh, no, I haven't been. To, I didn't even know we had that. I I went to the one in Greece last year. Well, there's a complete reconstruction of it in Nashville, but you know, Nashville's nearby. You know, it's a lot yeah. less interesting. It's probably and it has the um, uh, uh, replica of the original statue of Athena inside. It's on my list. <laughs> it's so funny. I really want to see it now that you mention it again. But it's um, I didn't even realize. Uh, they had that. So um, point taken. Well, so I'm, I'm really curious about uh, how this book came together. And did you work with, are there illustrations in the book? Are there diagrams? Did you, I mean, can you tell me a little bit about kind of the project itself of, of um, going through these different wonders and, and creating this, this book about them? Well, my original idea was to look at, was to actually illustrate geology in terms of the Seven Wonders, which was, uh, and, and as with most original ideas, of course, it gets completely turned around. So what the book ended up was, uh, on an intermediate stage, was the geology of the Seven Wonders, and then it became the science of the Seven Wonders. Mm. So the idea was to try and put... Uh, the seven wonders into their context. So in each of the chapters, I, I, I spend a lot of time trying to work out what we know. And when we don't know it, what would be the most practical way of doing things? Because often we don't have the descriptions. But we can, we can often work out what, what would be the sensible way of doing something. 
Uh, and, and then there's the resources, because every wonder needed resources. So for the pharos, it needed stone. So where did the stone come from? And you need a site. And Alexandria, one of the reasons why, why Alexander the Great was so keen on it was it's beside the delta. Now, the delta in those days, until the construction of the dams on the Nile, was flooded for about two to three months a year. Uh, and once the flood subsided, then they planted it and they could harvest uh, win winter crops then. So the Delta was a great place for growing things, but it wasn't a great place for building a city because it got flooded on a regular. Whereas Alexandria is slightly higher and it's built on a series of ridges or uh, these essentially fossilized dunes or uh, beaches. And there are a series of eight of these ridges. And so the geology controlled uh, the landscape there, and the landscape controlled where they placed the city itself. And it's a very unusual geological situation to be able to have those ridges and have these multiple ridges. And so the forest was on one ridge, Alexandria, the town itself, was on the next ridge in, and then there were another six ridges further south. Then there's the whole region. Why, I mean, why is it so low-lying along there? Why is, why is the geography the way it is? And then there's something about other materials, because, uh, for instance, the granite. There was a lot of granite used uh, for making the monumental doorway. Where did that come from? It came from Aswan, a lot, a lot further south. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of science involved in not only the building of these things, but the environment, shaping the environment that made it possible to have a big city there. How did we do the water supply? Why did we need water supply there? So, so all those kind of questions I dealt, I deal with in the book. Wow. So, uh, and these are the things that, I mean, everything conceivably was more difficult to do back then, given the uh, technology situation compared to today. Um, yes, but labor was a lot cheaper. <laughs> oh, true. Right. <laughs> yeah. Remember, one, one had slaves. Right, right. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, so uh, yeah, you didn't have to pay them, you had to feed them. Well, I don't think they did too much of that. But no, slavery was part of... of um, Probably the, the uh, pre um, in the very early times it was probably not so important, but Greek times slavery was important, and Roman times slavery was important too, a uh, wow. source of uh, of labour. Uh, so you're really thinking through all the various elements that go that went into how these wonders were created and why they were created. Um, I cannot wait to read this book. Like I said, uh, as a kid you know, lists naturally appeal to the human mind. Um, and it's still constantly social media, everything or lists top five, this top seven, that this is like the original list um, of great, well, you know, uh, creations. Go ahead. Well, the, the original, um, one of the early descriptions by Philo of uh, Byzantium. So this is probably third century BCE. He has a, a long description, which I, I quote in the book, about, about all the work you have to do, and you have to go here to this wonder, and you have to go there to that wonder, and all the difficulties of it. And he said, and then at the end, you're nearly dead. 
So basically, by my book, <laughs> this is Philo speaking, not me. Uh, and then you will have to go to all these places because I've been there and I've done all the research for you. So, wow. Okay. Um, so, so, so tourism. I... Sorry, tourism was not very active then, but tourism became important later on. So. <laughs> okay, and that's what this, and I've heard it described in those terms that this list was almost like a travel log of this of sort of the Mediterranean world um, because it, it wasn't involving potential wonders from uh, obviously other major areas of the world there, there, you know, we didn't have things um, listed from, you know, the great wall of China comes to mind or something like that. I don't know when that was built, but that isn't on the list uh because it just wasn't part of the same sphere. Is that right? No. The, the sphere at that point was uh, stretched as far as uh, as, as Persia. Um, and uh, so that was the uh, Mesopotamia, which is modern uh, Iraq. Uh, the ba Babylon, of course, is in, in Iraq. Uh, still there. Okay. Uh, and uh, so that was the world for them, was the Mediterranean and was the... Uh, uh, the Mesopotamia area and the extreme area of it was Persia. Yes, there were civilizations elsewhere, but they were not ones that people really interacted with perhaps that much. Mm. Um, so um, I'll remind listeners that we are talking to Michael Dennis Higgins uh, about his new book this year, The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, Science, Engineering, and Technology. Um, my last question for you uh, is... In this pro in this project of putting this book together, did any which wonder surprised you the most, or which um, or or impressed you the most, based on what you already knew about it? Well, I think it's the Pharos, um, because I I thought I'd finished the chapter on it, and I was looking around for a really good illustration of what we think the Pharos looked like. And I found one, and it was a watercolor painting. It's a lovely watercolor painting. And so I asked permission, because you, you need to pay for permission. And the artist in question wanted so much money that I couldn't afford it. So I, I started to think, well, maybe I could do a picture myself. And then, and then it occurred to me from there that nobody, everybody has, when they've been trying to create the perfect image of the pharos they only create the islamic one hmm. but they often set it in a ptolemaic setting right. but it's actually the description and so i went back to it and i produced three very simple images mine are not nearly as beautiful they're not in watercolor <laughs> uh, they're just drafted of what i thought was the evolution of uh the uh, of the pharos with the time and, and that was to me that people hadn't seen, curiously enough, they hadn't seemed to have done that before. Right. So that was the one that, so it was the Pharos which changed most with my, uh, uh, with the work that I was doing on it. Um, some of the other ones were, were interesting too. I, I enjoyed them, but uh, no, the Pharos was my favorite. Wow. Okay, great. Um, then I'm glad we focused on it today. And yeah. I think the element of all of this that, I didn't have an awareness of was this evolution of the lighthouse. And I think the images that we see, you know, sometimes they're very embellished and 
uh, creative and whatnot. Um, but I do agree with you that I think people are taking the Pharos at its peak, so to speak. Um, and then they're, you know, putting it in the time period that people associate it with, which is the ancient Greeks and Romans. Yeah. And so it's, it's kind of a mismatch, uh, is what I'm hearing from you. And, and you've, uh, laid out the evolution more realistically. Well, is there anything else, Michael, um, that you want to, um, tell listeners or anywhere they can follow you or anything else other than, um, obviously this, this new book. And, uh, I'm sure that a lot of people listening are going to be interested in, in checking this out. No, I don't think I want to add anything else. Just buy a copy of my book. That's all. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm definitely on that list. And uh, and I we're going to do an ongoing series about the seven wonders. Like I said, this has fascinated me for a long time. And I had never, I was looking for, this is exactly what I've been looking for for a long time. Um, and so uh, uh, I think we're going to do an ongoing series. And so maybe I'll reach out with some questions here and there if I run into any major roadblocks, but um, your book will help be a guide for that, that journey for us. So um, thanks again for coming on the show and hopefully we can talk again sometime. It was my pleasure to be on your show. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Thanks for listening.